I once hacked a network this big. That's nothing. I hacked a network this big. And that was specifically how we got validation for a long time. And like I said, I was part of that problem for a long time. But I realized after a while, and a number of people did, that organizations weren't getting better. We, were kept, we kept on breaking our arms, trying to pat ourselves on the back, talking about how elite we were, and yet we were still finding the exact same vulnerabilities again and again. We got Jordan and Kent here with us today. Welcome to a Black Hills Information Security webcast. And we got uh, Jordan and Kent who are doing a blue team perspective talk on red team tools, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something to that effect. So if you have questions, feel free to ask questions because we're always you know, looking for questions. But ask the questions in Discord if you can. But if you have a question, like CJ likes to put it this way, if you have a question that will enhance what we're talking about today, so that Kent and Jordan can answer it, then ask that and go to webinar. We'll, we'll be on the lookout for those. If you have a comment about what Kent and Jordan are talking about, just go ahead and comment on that inside the Discord channel. You can post memes, GIFs. You can talk to each other in Discord. That's a great place for it. But if you have a question that will enhance today's conversation, then please ask it and go to webinar. And then CJ will jump in from time to time and ask your question. Now, we can't get to all of them, but when this is over today, we're going to stick around for 10 to 15 minutes and just rapid fire answer questions with Kent and Jordan. And with oh, that, man. I know, right? Wait, are we, dropping, are we dropping? Wait, wait, wait. Are we dropping Plumhound today? Yeah, we are. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. All right. Oh, it's going to cool. blow up. All right. right. This is the coolest thing since uh, the wheel. Sliced bread, whatever. Uh, yeah. right. You too. Take on over. New tools every day. But this one takes some stuff to a new level. Like, oh, we're starting this very well. We're doing this. We're doing this. Slides uh, are up. See them? Yeah, we're good. Let's go. All right, man. You're up. Swing. Right, so we wanted to have a talk today. A while back, we had a, a conversation with a client, and it was something along the lines of, can you help us secure our Active Directory to put, uh, environment? And we said, yeah. And they were very interested in some red team tools, and we were very interested in helping them. And we we very quickly found a uh, executive problem statement that we're going to talk about later. But what came of that is Jordan and I kind of reflected on, from a defense perspective, all the red team uh, tools that are out there, or at least some of them, and kind of how they fit in in, in the environment of trying to defend. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. So this is Kent and I. You've seen us before, maybe. Maybe this is your first webcast. Maybe not. The purple is here for John today because we know it's his least favorite color. So I hate you. It's a color of royalty. <laughs> it's, it's royalty. It's prestige. It's the color of clowns. It, I wish. It, uh, I wish. Oh, we don't love purple either. But the industry <laughs> has designated on. that bridge between red and blue is purple. So we went with it. And John told us he hates the color. So we went with it doubly. So, so the executive talk summary today, today. Yeah. go ahead, Kent, sorry. Yeah, so we're going to talk about are these red team tools, but in the blue team perspectives. We're going to give both sides of that. And then what you end up with is this kind of purple team view of things because you have to mix both together and you end up with purple. But it doesn't always work out as cleanly as that. And we're going to kind of talk about that as well. We're going to do these in terms of a life cycle. So red team, we're going to talk about attacking. Blue team, we're going to talk about defending. And then that life cycle of what does it look like if we try to put that into like a continual improvement kind of life cycle. And we're going to talk about that. And then uh, later in the hour, we'll talk about Plumhound and, and what's going on there. Now, 
Jor and I, all of our webcasts, we have to have this executive problem statement. And it, it's matured over time. It used to be, you know, the basic questions like, what are our tools and are they working and how do we detect them? Can we spend and, our way out of this? <laughs> and it really comes down to, we've always said, I've always said that red team tools, they're for blue teams too. But that, that statement actually breaks down really fast in certain occasions. And uh, those questions where it breaks down are like, how do I use it? It doesn't help me. What, what can I do? How is this scalable? Things like, uh, what does it even mean? Like from defending, what, what does this tool actually do? Why do I care? And that's kind of what we're using for a problem statement is where the whole reason we're doing this is so we can better understand that and then really use those tools for when we say the blue team, they're made for them too. actually trying to, to break that down and, and do that. Yeah, agree. So there's Kent wrote this slide and I had to ask him, well, what's HSA? Oh, yeah. Home, Homeland Security. OK, so I wouldn't say this in, I wouldn't say ahead. I wrote this slide. I would say. I stole two slides from the from Homeland Security, and what I found interesting about this these two slides is that this was they were talking about red teams and and eventually purple teams, right? About the defense side of red teaming, and one of the comments they added on here was the red teaming, right? Is it's guaranteed maximum effort, but there's a potential that you'll have minimum return, and it's it's kind of an interesting perspective when you actually think about it and and look at what these tools these tools are made for red teams and there's a lot of effort that's put into them but it doesn't always mean that return was is going to be a one for one on the defense side and i think that's really interesting and, and hsa had already kind of realized that and they were trying to move forward from there and and this is one of their slide decks talking really about purple teaming in a i guess kind of an abbreviated fashion and back to something that was mentioned earlier it's in my perspective, is it possible, Kent, to tune a sim without red teaming your own organization, without hiring a third party to do it, without some kind of role play where you actually password spray, you actually establish C2, or you you know actually pass a hash to authenticate to a remote system? Yeah, right. Because if you, if you think about it, just like John talked about antivirus in pre-show banter, right? These signatures, malware-based signatures, and you can create these, these signatures for the IOCs that look like an attack, but are they going to work? And if, you, if you've never tested them, if you don't go through the effort of testing them, you, it's really not maybe protecting you, but you don't know unless you go through the motion of attempting that attack, attempting the hunt, making sure that you caught it. And if you didn't, you need to modify your configuration, your signature, how you're using your SIM to make sure that you can catch them and that you can react on them. Agree completely. So and this, we, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So this is an interesting one. This is oh, this is an ugly slide because it's all texty. The, the point here is NIST has a uh, controls out. So in 853 Rev4 controls CA7 and CA8. What's interesting here is they talk about what you should be doing for information security, and our uh, CA7 is about your blue team monitoring. It's about defending. It's about that. Circular continual improvement, and CA8 is talking about the pen test. They're, they're essentially saying that, yeah, you can have CA7, and you can have CA8, but really, without both of them, you're losing the point, and you need both of them there together to really make sense of it. And of course, CA7 plus CA8 ends up being purple team, which they don't they don't define that with NIST in 853. But that's kind of what they're alluding to is that CA7 blue, CA8 red. 
and of course it makes purple yeah and roxanne just pointed out the text is small yeah the text is supposed to be small yeah you it's, don't read that go read the controls right that it's don't, it's no. pointing I mean, out the fall of life you wouldn't want to yeah. have a red team if you've never implemented optics unless you are trying yeah. to get budget for optics and that's why, you know, in terms of the way they list out their controls, CA7, which is the blue team monitoring, is first, right? They're actually, they're actually putting that, like, this is your control you should have first before you go into attacking. Agree. But some organizations are up against, well, I have to have a pen test, but I have no staff or budget to deploy optics, configure optics, and then maintain them. So it ends up being a tough report. Yeah, sure does. Well, tough report to receive anyway magenta a lovely color <laughs> so we talk about these we're going to talk about more about red red team tools right but from the perspective of we can kind of generalize them right the red team tools that are out there they're they're exceptionally good at breaking protocols programmatically reverse engineering automagically tomfoolery engineerically i made that word up and good old-fashioned deception deceptively so the point here is that these tools are they're made for one purpose, and that's to make a red teamer's life easier and eventually to get that pwnage, right? That's that's what they're designed for. They aren't necessarily designed for going telling you what the problems are in your environment. They're not necessarily like an antivirus that's determined to tell you what virus you have installed and the correct uh, method for removal. They're just there to do that red teaming well, and to get pwnage. And this also gets into a larger debate that's happening on the Twitters right now. On one side, you have people like Richard Bachelick, who's talking about whenever you're creating implants, you're bypassing endpoint security products, and we're doing red teaming. He says we're making the adversaries' lives more easier, and we need to try to figure out how we can tip the scales. We're actually making their lives more difficult. And I think that this webcast, the reason why I personally got so excited about it was because it's kind of starting to try and answer that question a little bit more. And there's a lot of people that have been doing this, right? SpectreOps has been doing this as part of their core business for a long time. But really, you know, when we're looking at red teaming, it's not just about breaking into an organization and saying, ha, you suck. It's how do we actually make people improve? And it's not as simple as everyone saying motherhood and apple pie and saying we all agree. Um, in Bachelix's example, if we create a backdoor like GCAT or we create a backdoor like something like Silent Trinity, and then a nation-state level adversary uses that, is there any culpability? Is there any responsibility on the part of the red teamers? It's easy to knee-jerk as a red teamer and say, well, hell no, freedom of speech. You know, we're trying to make things better. But he does have a point. And as a whole, I think that the red teams all need to do better at trying to make those blue teams better rather than just saying, hi, you suck. Black Hills has had this conversation about its ethos and, you know, morally and ethically, we write a tool and we see it in the news in two months. That's, that's, I don't know. Is it uncomfortable? Yeah. Does it push the industry forward? Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm always challenged. It's, it's a tough conversation to have. Like we wrote a tool that was used to take down a government. That's not, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, right. Yeah, hypothetically, my, <laughs> yes, might may or may not. But I uh, kind of, if, if people want to know kind of where I come from on this, I believe firmly that things are only fragile till they're till they break, and that's why it's important for us as red teamers, as security professionals, to break things constantly because that's where we start finding weak points. That's where we start finding faults, and there's a lot more of us than there are actual adversaries. And if we do our jobs well. 
will actually reinforce and make architectures better. But it only works if the red team is actually working to make things better at the same time. So this kind of drives the point that, and it's this is sometimes political almost, that we're saying red teams have this amazing skill at breaking things. It's an amazing skill at understanding those protocol levels at a very deep level and breaking things. And innately, the the most professional blue teamers, they're, they're not red teamers, right? Those They are very different skill sets. And, you know, the industry for years now has tried to to merge this this purple teaming and it's it's difficult because you have to look at it you know initially it was like okay everybody come together and collab right and the reason i don't think that always worked well is because there was this kind of ignoring that there was two different skill sets we just assumed that red teamers could be blue teamers and blue teamers could be red teamers and everybody would have a big party and it'd call it purple teaming and it doesn't work that way right we have to acknowledge that the skill sets are different and that way we can leverage all of those skills, those expert skills from both teams. And that's kind of what we're trying to do even with this is saying that all these red team tools have this other component. Maybe it's not fully thought out yet, but if you look at it from this perspective, it can be. Agree. Yeah, that, that's very well described. And so then we if we take that step forward and we let the red teams into our environment or we build our own red team, they definitely help move defenses forward. If they don't, I, I personally believe you're doing it wrong. So the most important thing on networks these days is optics. And there's so many different places and so many different ways to get it. But most of us maintain and manage Windows domains. So defining auditing baselines, this is a problem still in, I don't know, 40 or 50% of the networks we test they really aren't seeing what we're doing. They can't give me back PowerShell command line usage. They don't catch me port scanning their entire environment with MassScan, Nmap, and all of these other things in full, like, full smash mode. But I think we can get more people there. I, I don't know how, but I think we can keep moving forward. It's an expensive proposition to hire a third party to come in and tell you what you're doing wrong or to demonstrate what you're doing wrong especially now in the time of budget crunch, but having a purple team test your auditing baselines, push your SIM forward or doing it yourself, just validating you can catch PowerShell commands. That is still like not easy for all of our customers to do. So this comes down to optics and, you know, we, we talk about that, but I worked with a, um, an organization. They had a, a super large, one of the most well-known sims in there and had endpoint on it. And we essentially were operating as DAs on day two. And it wasn't until day four that they caught us, and they caught us because of, of NetBIOS poisoning, right? They, we had gone that far that we'd now kind of got sloppy, and we're like, well, we'll see what else we can do. Oh. And on the day four, they called us and said, hey, you guys are doing uh, – Responder poisoning, uh, we caught you. We've been in there for four days now, or for two days. Well, so it's interesting. And that, that also gets that also gets to another perspective that I, I fundamentally believe that every red team's goal should be at some point to get caught. We need to identify where those clipping levels are, where we can get caught, so we can do that gap analysis as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one. John, I remember when you got a call from me one morning, and I said, a lady just told me I must have been the best kind of evil. Because I finally added myself to their DA group. It's like, all right, well, I took over everything. I might as well add myself. Oh, she was livid. 
holy cow the best kind well, of evil. And, and and they but that that was oh, a weird one though too weird. because yeah that's you know the customer the person that we were working with was happy but every once in a while you get those blue team side people where they feel like the red team may have gone too far and usually they feel the red team has gone too far because it's embarrassed them that's true it's interesting so hey, sigma CJ. and sigmac are tools you should definitely look at these basically help us understand a generic log format and then convert them for whatever sim you want to use you basically take your sigma rules you pop them in your sim the rules trigger and fire whatever alerting mechanisms you may have in place whether you know whether that's a last alert and you get um, a slack channel notification text messages emails whatever these are amazing tools that you definitely need to go look at for your sims but then how do you challenge those rule sets because well you need to challenge your rule sets to make sure they're mapped properly and that's again we're back to purple teaming or we're back to a blue teamer turning into a purple teamer for a day so the rule format looks something like this pretty generic and what do we do we define a set of conditions under which we expect an alert to trigger. Kent, anything you want to add there? No, this probably went like super, like we went from like floating on water with theory to like, whoa, into the mix. And I know CJ's popping up, got a question for us. Sure, yeah, we can stop right there. Not a question, well, there's been a couple things. Uh, one is, guys, one of the, uh, please don't make me register as the handle. Can you define practically what a purple team engagement is? Because in my experience, the teams work separately and do their own thing. That seems wrong. It may or may not be wrong. It depends on the goals. So we definitely do what we call black teaming, where it's unannounced, because you want to test whether someone can detect you. Then we do things internally where we call it like sim tuning or threshold detection clipping tuning levels where you want to you're going to cooperate with the blue team to say hey we're doing this can you see this you sort of coach them through it the objective in any specific engagement is to be determined really by you the customer i'll let you guys pontificate a bit if you yeah i would say so there's, there's two parts to that one if it's if you're talking about third party purple teaming that's really tough because part of of blue team on, on the purple teaming aspect is you have to know with your entire infrastructure inside and out. If you don't know that, then you got to start there, right? So that's why it's tough for a third party to come and do that and do it awesome. The other part of that, though, is if you're, if you're in an, an environment where you have a blue team and a red team currently, and you want them to collaborate together, Jor and I, we've got a class coming up that is called uh, Applied Purple Teaming. It's, it actually covers this really closely. Essentially, you look at from the perspective of creating a framework, creating what that organization looks like and building a framework that someone can collaborate on. So it's not just red teams attacking and giving a report to blue team. That does not create purple team, right? That doesn't, that's just blue and red. It's just defense and attack. What makes it a purple team is the collaboration together and building a framework that the organizations can leverage the skill sets from both parties and make that useful for the organization itself. Yeah, I agree. I see some other questions related to like, how do we measure metrics? What, how can you demonstrate the value and addition of a purple team, Kent? <laughs> so last year, Jordan and I developed this class, and these are questions that we actually went to, to seek out and find answers for. And what we determined is that if you build a framework and you 
basically do it very intentionally. You say, yes, red team, blue team. We want to create a purple team that's really just a collaboration leveraging both skills. If you do that in a framework, you can create KPIs everywhere inside that framework. You can have KPIs for the amount of attacks that get deployed through the network that end up being a defense mechanism that get deployed out. You can create KPIs for that, and that can eventually become a dollar amount that ends up feeding back into the department. So Not everyone things- here, Ken, has a business degree. A KPI is a key performance indicator. Those can be both qualitative and quantitative. Absolutely. So the idea here being is that you have a red team, you have a blue team. They're always doing their work they would every other day. But if you want to do a purple team to get them to collaborate, you do this in a life cycle so that you can create very specific, Jordan hates this word, but goals, right? If you set goals for them, the things that they can reach to, you build a framework for what that looks like so that they can operate inside that framework and they know what they're responsible for. If you do those things inside of of that framework for the organization, your purple team can be successful and it's not going to just be the red team and the blue team fighting each other. It's actually going to be a collaborative effort for good. I hate there's also a whole other... Go ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things that we have to be very careful of, and I'm seeing a lot of organizations fall into this trap, is whenever the red team does something and the blue team tries to instrument the detection for that thing, a lot of times they're going back to very rigid signatures. Like, for example, on the Sigma project, there's a whole series of rules where they're doing a search for the use of anything called Mimikatz, and they're looking specifically for that string. That's a mistake. We can't just be looking for basic signature-based detections, and as red teamers, we can't be sharing those standard blacklist signature-based detections. We've got to be able to go deeper and say, you know, okay, so we've got this is this particular thing is injecting into LSAS. Here's how you would actually go about trying to detect that. We have to be intelligent about how we're communicating and setting those goals for the organization to detect these attacks. You know, in that in that framework too, you can define out things like when you reach down to that defense perspective and hunting, like what does that actually look like? And if you set the the guidelines for what that looks like, you can prevent that kind of rigid signature-based application that eventually doesn't work, right? So Jordan, we're gonna talk about responder. I think we've talked about responder in every webcast. I don't know why we wouldn't. It still works every single test. Whether it's writing the LNK file to a writable share and having hashes come back, or whether it's just getting into the network and launching Responder, it always seems to be effective. All right, so let's just, let's just cap Responder out. We'll say it's network poisoning, allows us to grab cache, uh, hashes, allows us to grab authentication handshakes, allows us to grab cookies if we use like WPAD, right? Something to that effect, yeah. It's, it's basically a poisoning tool for weekly configured Microsoft default protocols. This is pretty much a red team tool. I mean, what's, what's the blue team side of it? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I, I don't know how I would use this, except for I would want to be able to catch usage of it. So yeah. it's, it's a very standard MITRE technique, right? It is used, I think U.S. government employees were told to avoid hotel wireless because there were Russians targeting specific hotels and using Responder. This, this is a dangerous tool. It's a tool you definitely need to be able to catch. Okay, so from blue team perspective, we, we really just need to know whether or not we're vulnerable, right? So what about the hunting side? What does that, what does that look like? Well, uh, before we hunt, I would talk about defense, right? You want to prep right. yourself. You want to be ready for someone to come in. Yeah, the, the last comment I saw... Uh, SMB signing? Yeah, SMB signing is definitely still a thing, and you definitely get dinged for that in your pen test reports because, well, if you want to know whether or not you should turn it off, hire us for a pen test, and we'll show you why you should turn it off. 
But really, the defense methodology is several steps, right? Limit LLM and R via group policy. This, this one is tough, right? Not all people can deny access to a computer via group policy. But we, we really gloss over NBNS here because NBNS is on by default on all NICs you attach to Microsoft systems. There isn't a group policy setting that says you can go turn off NBNS everywhere. So now you've got to have a PowerShell script running that basically pushes down a configuration setting to disable NetBIOS name lookups on all your adapters everywhere, right? And firewalls, right? I, I was testing this last night. And guess what? I wasn't authenticating remotely to a system and I figured out the firewall was on. Boom. Posed. But I turn off the firewall, which a lot of people do to troubleshoot. Mm -hmm. Leave it off. 445 is open. We relay. We get your local admin creds. We laterally move. Pivot. Pillage. So I wanted to share with people, if, if you're not on the Discord channel, you should be. So there's a tool called Responder that helps detect responder-style attacks. And then also I shared out the Cred Defense Toolkit from Black Hills Information Security that is specifically designed for detecting things like Kerberosting and responder-style attacks as well. I thought I included those in here. Are they in here? I, they just popped up. Yeah. Yeah, but Responder Guard, that was kind of funny. We found uh, uh, an event you can create on a network. Again, part of that Cred Defense Toolkit. Great tool. But... Yep. Denying access. This isn't, again, this is a group policy that isn't available to everyone because they want to access our systems remotely. But this is another way to kill the relay attacks. So some detections down there at the bottom that pass the hash. So let's move over to CrackMap. Exactly. Amazing red team tool. Yeah. I, you know, when I first played around with this, I was surprised at how quickly it just made effortless work. <laughs> yeah. It's a very stealthy tool. It's designed to take advantage again of a lot of protocols on Windows networks. So you poison respond relay. Then I usually get local hashes, whether it's workstation administrators, server administrators, those hashes, I then pull back into CrackMap and pass the hash attacks are still valid. Now Microsoft thought disabling pass the hash attacks by limiting the accounts you can authenticate against a remote system locally yeah, to like RID 500, SID 500. Yep. yep. So it, that's ineffective if you get a hold of domain credentials, which happens all the yep. time in these attacks. So anyway. I mean, it also, uh, it, also tool, limited right? you, it also limited you to when you get a win, you get a, a local administrator win. So it's always nice. Yeah, exactly. So this is a red team tool, right? You know, it it's very fast for red team tools. Yeah, no, no question. I would say this is pretty solid on the red side. <laughs> I think most of them today are gonna be all yeah, red. I mean, we would agree. <laughs> Except you definitely want to be able to catch it. So here's one. We we tried to figure out when we were writing this class, how would we actually catch the extraction of NTDS DIT if it was a valid DC sync operation, right? So CrackMap uses, you get a DA hash, and you basically request a DC sync. It happens over DRS UAPI. And I thought the names of these requests initially when I started researching were Marcello making fun of something. I have no idea. What is DS crack names? But anyway, that turned out to be completely valid in the protocol and usage for this remote API call. So then we figured out, well, how are we going to catch this, Kent? What, what do we do? And, well. We better perform that attack. 
And so we worked backwards through those steps of identifying past the hash attacks. This was even before we knew Sigma rules existed. So we figured out backwards the same results, which is event ID 4624, valid authentication, a user reported SID of S100, null nobody, and then a logon process name of NTLM SSP. So when we combined these things in our SIM, we were consistently catching past the hash attacks, which you want to be able to do if you hire pen testers. Before, so, sorry, from this perspective, then hackers take over using crack map exec. We're using it just to essentially attack, hunt, and then define out what our signature is. Right, even though yeah. the way we're defining it out is not is not very. We're not actually capturing or identifying like exploitation of machines at this point. We're just using logs. Yeah, we're trying to figure out what this tool looks like in usage because. While it is a pretty hard red team tool, right? It's, it, you know, you have to be able to catch these things. It's not the only tool that implements past the hash attacks. You want to be able to catch the indicators of compromise, whatever tooling. It's just this one is so easy to use that why wouldn't we use this one? Yep. So from a lifecycle life perspective, first thing is get approval. You don't want to be attacking your networks, but without approval or authorization. But from that perspective, what that life cycle might look like for this is to actually run the replays, run CME, and eventually do that do that, that uh, attack, and then attempt to hunt for what you just did, and then and see if you can build a signature for it. And then, of course, the last portion of a life cycle would be to implement that signature into your production environment uh, so that you can utilize like signature and hopefully catch next time someone runs crap back exit. Or yeah, any attack, attack. Yep. So password sprays, right? This is another way we move laterally when you hire us to come into your network. It's it's a very standard attack. We use PowerShell. If not PowerShell, we use PowerShell without PowerShell. Command prompt. I love Joff's for loop where you have a list of users. You iterate through your list of users against a single password with a command prompt. So whatever we can do, however we can get there, we are almost certainly going to password spray every network we come across. So domain password spray is easy enough for us to implement, use. I am saying in the next slide, I believe it is about a five minute tool from zero to password spraying your environment. So red but, team is pretty clear here. I, I get what we're trying to do is we're just trying to get a password right by using summer 2020 bang, like no one should be using that password. From the blue I, team, this should, it should be pretty easy. Like we could audit for bad passwords, right? Like that's pretty simple. Yeah, agree, completely agree. My cat's talking to me, so it threw me off my game a little bit here. <laughs> but blue team perspective on this, right? We probably ought to know what our organization's security culture is like. And unfortunately, generally bad. Unless, unless your organization has implemented a 15 character password policy and it is ingrained in your people to not hate that password policy because they understand length is more important than knowing Kanye West is married to some lady. It, it's, this is a serious challenge for organizations. So again, we're gonna have to go back to the next slide where it says, well, you need approval to do this, right? You're gonna get a hold of people's credentials almost certainly if you have bad password policies. And knowing this is a common lateral movement technique isn't good enough. So one, you need permission to do this because you are going to see people's credentials 
And I don't know, Kenneth, what do you got here? I mean, technically, if I said your password is summer 2020, bang, and I said to a large enough group of audience, I knew their password. I just didn't know who it was. You know, I, I agree. I think obviously you need to have authorization. The, the good thing here is you'll be able to determine what that, that password hygiene looks like. And just saying 15 characters, the interesting thing about that is if you take, take, take all the American like, uh, English words, right? Put them out, get frequency analysis on it, figure out what the top thousand words are. What's a thousand time or a thousand cubed, right? It's uh, a billion. So we can crack a billion password hashes in, in less than a second. So just because you have three words in your password, that doesn't mean you have a good password either. Five words isn't even necessarily good enough if it's all the top 1,000 frequency words. This is where pass domain password spray can come into play. But really, I think the other big benefit here for Blue Teams is the fact that if you can do this and you can catch it, that's where the, the, big, the big win for this is because you're going to be able to catch those brute forces then that are lateral instead of being vertical. Sure. So I just saw an interesting question from Jimmy, but I'm, I'll, we'll address that in just a second. CJ, we have any other interesting questions? Anything you want to talk about? It's kind of a hodgepodge here. Early on, they were asking what we like for honeypots. Sure. John? I, I really like, for, for a lot of the things that you're talking about here, one of my favorite honeypots when we're talking about password spray attacks is create a user account, log into the user account, set its logon hours to zero, and then set up a SIM alert where anytime someone tries to authenticate to that account, it'll generate an alert on who's trying to authenticate and from where. And that will shut this particular, this will, that will detect this attack immediately because domain password spraying is not a targeted endeavor. They're pulling down every single user account in order to do it. What's interesting too, John, is, is I think the clarification is that you didn't just say tool, right? You actually gave the methodology to how to do it. And I think there's, when you talk about some of these things about, about blue teaming and, and creating these tripwires, th there's not always a tool. Sometimes it's actually you configuring things in a logical way to be able to build that hunt platform. Agree. And another uh, question here was, what's the general difference between event ID 4624 and event code or event ID 4776? One of those is Kerberos validation, and one of those is just a standard Windows account logon. I think we show this in a couple slides coming up, but 4624 is a successful logon, 4625 is an unsuccessful logon. Now, the 4776 codes, you have to be baseline optic. You have to have a specific set of audit policy configuration settings in your Windows domain that are pushed to, one, your domain controller baseline as defined by Microsoft, your member server, audit baseline as defined by Microsoft, and then your workstations, right? All of these have slightly different audit policy configuration recommendations. And you will never see event code 4776 if you're not auditing properly. Yeah, now, so you won't see this unless you've done it intentionally, right? And I think that's key is that the default configuration does not yield itself to be able to do some of these hunts. You actually have to put the effort in and do these things intentionally. Agree, yeah. Optics are so crucial. So for a lot, of, a lot of organizations, I assume a lot of people, on, even on this webcast, have not really understood the fundamentals of Windows Optics. And there's some serious problems with their default settings that leave us blind to critical, like, critical things like password spraying. 
Well, and and I don't know exactly what the webcast was. It was one of the attack tactics webcasts. If you remember, we thought it would have been easy to say, okay, we're going to go through and find out what are the event logs that you should find for the entire attack methodology. And we found out by default, it caught nothing. And then simply by enabling a few things, it still wasn't detecting. We had to go, I swear to God, to like page three on Google to figure out how to get the level of detection that we needed. I think it was like attack tactics, attack tactics six or something like that, where you guys went through and said, this is specifically how you have to set up your logging to detect this attack. Yeah, and that's, again, there's, okay, so let's let's talk about ASP for a second. You deploy an ASP domain integrated application on the edge of your network. IIS by default does not log squat to your event viewer, nothing. It logs everything to disk on a file, but that file does not propagate through your event forwarding configurations, just doesn't exist. So you have to go touch all of your application pools in IIS configure them to log to both the event viewer and disk if that's how you want to operate, define the sizes of those logs, and make sure those logs are forwarding. It it just turned out that Outlook and Exchange do not log. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to also give my age away by saying that my MCSE, right, yields me to really want to say that we can't fault Microsoft for this because there's a reason that it's deployed the way it is by default. And that is, you know, a history of, of computers that have gotten faster and faster over time. But there was a time when if you turned all this on, like, you wouldn't be able to do anything. You know, just the disk latency on writing logs all the time would prevent you from actually getting any work done. So it made sense to not necessarily have this enabled unless you were in an environment that needed it enabled. However, today, in today's environment, the security risk weighing that out has now because computers are faster, we can actually deploy these things, gain the security from it, and, and we're risking a lot less in doing that. It's costing us less on that balance to actually deploy these types of things, gain the uh, security posture from it, and not have to worry so much about that disk latency. That, that really would have been a problem years past. Yeah, I agree. So here's our event ID 4625, right? Either bad username or authentication information. So someone pointed that out in the logs as well. If I knew all my event IDs, I'd probably be a sim author or maintainer or something else. But, but basically, what we saw in our, if we look at this previous slide, we note a spike in our elastic cluster. We drill into the spike, just like Don, John did in pre-show banter. We look at each one of these columns now, and we can sort out what's going on, right? We're seeing a spike in bad username or authentication information events. So now we know in our sim that we probably want to configure some form of escalation, a rule, an alert, when we see spikes that look like this column highlighted in red. So, Ken, anything you want to add there? No, I think we got that covered, man. Sure. So let's look at Mimikatz. John wanted to talk about this, so let's do this. Here's your Mimikatz. Again, this is about two minutes for you to launch a PowerShell, run in bypass mode, and execute Mimikatz. It's all right there. Now, a couple things should happen. One, you're going to need to have an admin shell. Two, your antivirus is probably going to trigger. But, you know, there's another consideration here. Are you worried maybe that the MSP you've hired in your environment isn't getting the job done? Because if you kill AV on a box intentionally, with permission from your change management, CIO, whatever it takes for you to get permission to do things like this. If you kill AV on a box and are intending to test your managed service provider and they don't catch this as a big red flag, you probably need a new MSP. 
And I think maybe twice a week, our chat, our internal chat blows up about managed service providers. And we as pen testers are never satisfied with MSPs. And there's always gaps in how well they're delivering. But we're not on the end where we have to say, hey, managed service provider, you're not doing a great job. You didn't see this thing. You do, though. And to get there, guess what? If you're uncomfortable with what they're doing, you don't think they're getting it done, kill AV in a box, get permission, and run Mimi Cats. Well, and so, that, that really goes to, I, I think that that gets into a really thorough purple, purple teaming assessment, yeah. right? You're not just saying, can we be hacked? Can somebody bypass endpoint? You're now making an assumption. If they bypass our endpoint protection, now they're on the box. What can be detected from that point on? And the really horrible thing is about a lot of MSSPs or MDRs, managed detection response vendors, once you take away their endpoint product, they are blind. And this, is, this absolutely sums that up perfectly. So yeah, what, what we see here, I love this. When you are properly PowerShell logging, if you look at the Mimikatz, you know logo, the stuff written there, we get the exact same output written to our log. Boom. This is what you want to see. So are you suggesting you write a signature based off the logo of Mimikatz? <laughs> yeah. How many, how many pounds, pound prompts, and slash sheets are you used? <laughs> well, and this also gets to the brittleness of these types of signatures, right? The advanced persistent set attack is a great presentation by Eric Conrad, where he took Mimikatz and changed the name of it to Mimi Dogs, and then recompiled it, and it was able to bypass a lot of endpoint products. So you do want to be able to detect these things as table stakes. Yes, you may want to have a signature to detect this, but at the same time, you've got to go yeah. deeper and say, how is this process injection actually working as well? You know, John, he would have changed the name, but he wouldn't have changed the logo. The signature would have worked. That's the, <laughs> probably, probably true about the logo. The funny thing about the Mimi Dogs attack, though, is somebody, uh, there was a signature that was written for that, but if you changed it from Mimi Dogs to like, you know, Mimi Kittens or whatever, it still worked again. So it shows, once again, the brittleness of a lot of endpoint security products. Didn't Benjamin Delpy just show his latest executable on Twitter where he showed it against four or five different antivirus vendors, and it's still the same, you know, that trunk version of the EXE, modify a couple things, recompile, and guess what? It just takes a couple things in these tools to get them by EDR. So, I don't know. All right, this was, life cycle, the life cycle, you're starting to get kind of redundant now right because it's it's turning into something cyclical it's you get approval you do the attack you hunt you defend and you make a report right it's, the life cycle is pretty clear on these hey cj what's up man hey this is a nice question that came in from Ibrahima. what do you think about a company not using sim uh, but just using security events directly from edr platform like uh, crowdstrike carbon black Pros, cons. Sure. Most I, of those EDRs charge you a ton of money to do that for you. I'm not saying that there isn't a carbon black dashboard you can go manage and monitor yourself, but most of these companies mm -hmm. want to get you into an endpoint contract and then have you ship them logs so that they can do the processing themselves. And they probably do a better job of it. These EDRs are legit, and it is getting really difficult for pen testers and attackers to not step on some landmine that they trigger. And that's good, right? Yeah. But let's talk oh, about yeah. blind spots for a couple of seconds, okay? If your EDR goes down or it's not logging or the agent goes down or the attacker brings it down or there's ways to blind it, 
which they come out probably five, six times a year, you're effectively done. You've basically built your entire security around one thing. That is not defense in depth. And God help me for agreeing with Gartner on this. Gartner said that any MDR solution has to incorporate an endpoint security product and network visibility to be complete because you need to be looking for those overlapping fields of visibility where if one thing fails, something else can pick it up. So that's why I talk to people and I'm like, yeah, use your EDR and use Sysmon intelligently tuned to kind of complement and support each other with network level forensics to do it correctly. We were talking about crack map exec earlier, right? You noticed that the signature that we kind of found was actually found in Wireshark. So it's it's at that level for some of these attacks that you need to have that full visibility. So that one was a boundary defense question, and we used to argue about that as an MSP. Do we have IDS IPS protections on all boundaries on our internal networks? No. Psh, who's going to be running you know, some kind of attack on the inside of our network? This is one of them. The IDS rule would say, here are my known DCIP addresses trusted. If any requests for DRS API syncs come from other IPs, at my boundaries, trigger alerts. So, John, there is another question here I want you to address, if you don't mind. Why do we believe all, nearly all security vendors keep implementing like these kind of defense detect things improperly? Are they... Well, I, I, I mean, let, yeah, go ahead. You know what that's... Let, 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 let's back up for a second. I, I think that sometimes it can get too easy to rip on these vendors, right? And say yeah. that they're doing it wrong. They're doing it incorrectly. It is incredibly difficult to create an endpoint security product. It is incredibly difficult to look in all the nooks and crannies on a Windows operating system for what is going on. Even Microsoft themselves, there are Sysmon bypass techniques. There are AMZ bypass techniques that exist. You're not dealing with something simple. It's incredibly complicated. And if you're looking for a really quick stopgap, which is what a lot of people are looking for, writing a signature for something like Mimikatz works in the short term. And it also works for 98% of the attacks that would utilize it. So I think you're looking at this run and gun. You're looking at, you know, basically trying to do this gap analysis and fixing things as quickly as possible in a triage mode. But if we look at where endpoint security products are today and where they were five years ago, there's no comparison. They are absolutely getting much better at what they do. But back to gaps, the browser is the new endpoint. The cloud is the new endpoint. And a lot of those products start losing visibility there. Yeah, I don't know anyone who has deployed EDR on EC2 instances. I'm not saying that there aren't probably people on this webcast. I have never encountered a situation where someone's EC2 fleet was fully EDR'd. And that's that's just the facts of life. So, all right, Kent, we're almost there. Oh, man, Bloodhound. Okay, so back to the very first slide, right? We talked about a customer of ours that said they had a red team tool they wanted to use and they they struggled to understand the usefulness of it to defend the tool that they were talking about was bloodhound and i you know when we sat down we looked at their environment in bloodhound and it became very very apparent why they were struggling so bloodhound is a great way for red teamers and i, I consider it a red team tool but it's made for blue team too right it'll work it allows you to do things like pathfinding, right? And it's using a graphical database to do it. So you can do things like I have access to a user account here, a very low privileged user account, and I want access to DA. Show me the shortest hack path I can find to do just that with the least amount of effort. And that's what Bloodhound does. Now, 
from a red team perspective, that's what it's doing. It gives you information like that that's useful to make your job really fast to pwn a network as fast as possible, as efficient as possible. And then, you know, they've actually gone and people have made modules to this that actually now work with Cobalt Strike. So you can set up Bloodhound to find that shortest path, and then they just go import it into Cobalt Strike, and Cobalt Strike does the complete automation from user account to DA, and, and it's done. And that that was the red team pathfinding. Okay, so that's really cool. What you see in the lower left-hand corner here is, is why it's not cool for blue teams and why it struggles. So the right-hand side is all of the things that come pre-built in Bloodhound. So you can do things like find all the domain admins or you know, somewhere in the middle there is like groups with foreign domain group membership. So you can talk about now trust domain, Active Directory domain trust in the forest and finding links between those like in a bastion domain. So lot of power here, lots and lots of power in the graphical database that's being used to build all these relationships. From a blue team perspective, we know there's good data here. We see the data, but it's just, it's kind of clunky for us, right? We, we get, can get told what the red team did, how they got from, you know, the custodian's account to domain admin. We can, we can see that. They can give us all the IOCs about every step they took, but it still wasn't enough for us to go back and what are we going to do? Fix one account? Like that's that's not the point. That's not helping us. So that's kind of the red team tool. It's it's awesome. It is super super cool and efficient for red teams. Blue teams is just tougher. And from the lifecycle perspective, so Bloodhound, you have get the data from Active Directory in a couple different ways. You can use uh, Invoke Bloodhound to get everything set up and to inject that way. Uh, you can also use Sharp Hound, which is an EXE or uh, PowerShell which generates a bunch of CSV files that you then or JSON files that you then pull into Bloodhound. So the the attack here looks like you run some PS1 or some PowerShell for Sharphound. You get some data sets that you then import into Bloodhound, and then Bloodhound does the analysis of that to build those relationships. So that's kind of what that looks like from the lifecycle. It's that easy to run. Five. It minutes. is that easy to run, and you know from the the backside of the lifecycle. Turning that back and giving it to the blue team and say, hey, you need to go fix this stuff. The blue team's going to say, what do I need to fix? You can see it here. You ran PowerShell. That's not enough. It's not enough just to block the, the running of PowerShell, but to actually get the data out of, of Bloodhound is, is still really difficult. Much more difficult than just saying, yeah, you ran, you ran Invoke Bloodhound. So, so we figured out in our sim, it's pretty easy to catch PowerShell with a couple of or statements. I want to see all IEX or import or invoke statements. And then we get the stuff like we saw earlier with the Mimi cats. We get to see the whole logo. It's beautiful. It's captured because we properly optic and told our sim what we want to see. We were actually worried that we'd have to like baseline this to, to read out all the stuff that Microsoft does to manage an active directory domain. Those are actually very, very few and far between. We had a lab running for months, and you know, we, we looked at that specific query and didn't find a lot. All right, so Bloodhound, I consider it a problem. It's awesome for red teams. The blue team struggles. So I decided we're going to take an executive problem statement about this and, and really look at Bloodhound for the blue and purple team. So there's so much data. Like, there's so much. How do we make sense of it? And that's the question that I wanted to pose. And we came up with a solution. So uh, for the client, we went back and we said, okay, let's look at the data that's actually in Bloodhound in terms of what's meaningful to you. And we took that from the perspective of, we had to write a tool to do this. So we just went one step further and built a framework for it. And we released the framework on GitHub last night. So 
I would still call it a proof of concept framework at this point, but we call it a plum hound. And essentially the idea behind it is the way Bloodhound works is what's with what's called cipher queries. Cipher queries are those relational, uh, the graphical relational database and how those things pull data out of there and build those relationships. So we've just built a framework. What the framework does is it connects to Bloodhound, to the Neo4j database, and it runs cipher queries. And those cipher queries come back in some sort of meaningful way. And then we try to put that into a like an HTML report or dump it to grep or uh, dump it to like a CSV file that you can then ingest. So we've gone a little bit further than that then, and we've actually made it so that you can bundle a bunch of tasks, a bunch of cipher queries together to build reports. So if you go to the next slide, Jordan, looking at this, now this is not pretty by any means, but what we talked about all of those things that Bloodhound could do, right? And all of those were based on cipher queries that builds this nice pathfinding map, basically a GPS map of point A to point B. So we've done something very similar, except for we've built it into a report fashion. So th finding things like unconstrained delegation, upper left-hand corner, user to indirect local administrators, the upper right-hand corner, group policies to privilege, group, uh, group to admin, and then also corrosible accounts. These are things that are interesting because with this, you can actually go and find all the corrosible accounts that also have sessions on workstations that you might be interested in. For example, a domain controller or a remote desktop that also has lots of other users logged in as well. So the idea here was to take a look at that Bloodhound map and make sense of it in a way that you can infer work that needs to be done from a blue team perspective. So no longer do you get this kind of map that's massive. You can now look at a, a something that I think is ingested by, consumed by blue teams a lot better, which is, you know, honestly, logs and reports. To look at it from an analytical perspective and say, of all the paths, this is the commonality between these 400 accounts. There's this one step right here that's common. If we fix that one step, this problem kind of goes away. And this tool is designed to help facilitate that. So we've built the framework, and then we've built, we're also going to release later today, kind of a, basically a marketplace where everyone can add their own Cypher queries, because the power of this is not just in me creating a Cypher query and making it useful for you. The idea behind it is that if you create a Cypher query, because the way Bloodhound works, it's common between all Active Directory environments. You'll be able to run, replay that Cypher query across other environments. And that means if I create one, why can't you use it? If you create one, you know, if the goal is to better security as a community, we can do that by building these Cypher queries that generate these reports, and these reports can be meaningful. The big key here is taking these Cypher queries and making them aggregate data so that you not only see a number of user accounts that have access to a certain resource, but drill it down to why. And that's where the power is really going to come in at. Well, and, so and this, also becomes, this also becomes the task list for the blue team. And Absolutely. that's what was really yeah. missing from Bloodhound, is whenever you tried to explain this to a lot of red teamers, probably myself included, is you would say, well, here's we don't have a good way of pulling out what is the action items. And it's like, but I got domain administrator. Yeah, but there's like 150,000 things in the report that need to be addressed, but, but these... 12 got me domain administrator. And this really starts basically turning it into a worksheet for the administrators to address the issues, not just the one path the attacker used. So and I would have you take one step back in yeah. description of the tool. What, what is the input? How do you so, get from zero to Plumhound these reports? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting the way this works. Bloodhound is actually built on Neo4JS, right? That's the graphing uh, database. 
relational graphing database. It handles the, the relationship connecting, right? Bloodhound is a really awesome graphical tool, and it builds that map for you, right? And it provides that information graphically. You can export it to JSON, but that's still difficult to use. So what we've done is we've actually then, after you've imported the data in Bloodhound from Sharphound, take the Sharphound JSON files, import them into Bloodhound. Bloodhound builds all of those relationships together, builds control out what that map yep, the control pass, builds that all together, and then we're then connecting to that same database and running the same cipher queries that Bloodhound does, but we're doing it with the output being text-based tables or record sets instead of maps, if that kind of makes sense. So what this looks like from the actual syntax, I don't know if I have another slide on here or not. No, we don't. Okay, that's all right. But, Last slide. So the, the syntax essentially is just running Plumhound to specify the server, the username, password for the database, and then the task list. And the task list is a bunch of tasks. If you go and look at the GitHub page, they'll have all that information in there. It'll even give you like a sample task list, right? That, that job list that produces a bunch of reports. The idea here is that we can generate multiple task lists, ones that are for specific things. Like if you're interested in domain admins, you can create a task list that drills down domain admins and figures out your root cause analysis and why you have so many domain admins or why you have more than you thought or what the actual account privileges are of those domain admins. And you can create these sets of task lists that you can run and then share out as well. So that's kind of the, the community involvement is building that framework or building those task lists. And then also, I mean, this is proof of concept code and I'm not a rockstar Python guy. So if anyone looks at my code and says, you should have done it this way. Yeah, make, make a pull request or push request. And it's awesome. We're fine with that. Um, yeah, all the yeah, information looking, out there. Once again. We're looking for people to say, this sucks. Here's how to fix it. That's yes, awesome. That, That's how we exactly. get better. You know, and Jordan, go back one slide. I really wish I could have given the, the reports that came back from our client because they yeah, didn't look like this. This is like the most. So, yeah, let me talk about that really quick. Yeah. So we use a tool called Bad Blood, which is also available on GitHub to create a domain for us. Something like 2,000 user objects. 500 computers, and then 395 groups. The problem is that tool can't create sessions for us. So, and Bloodhound uses those sessions to be able to build those control paths. So we're missing a component in our in our database report here um, that's missing and doesn't give you a full picture of what can actually be done here. But if you look at the GitHub page, it's pretty easy to run. Again, if there's bugs, just let us know, or you, know, you can just fix it too. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Go home, make the world a better place. Absolutely. That puts us right at time, Jordan. I know. That's amazing. amazing. Holy cow, guys. That's like the best timing you guys have ever had. (laughs) I just got a comment that said that he hasn't seen any questions in this presentation. I got a topic, so. All the questions, there's been a lot of them. Yeah. We've been answering on the back end. Oh, my God. Here's a project for uh, AM Spartacus, Bad Blood is uh fills active directory domain with structure with thousands of objects the output yes. of the tool will create a demo or similar to the real world that's do cool not run this that. in production do not run in production yeah. that's true <laughs> well and, and well you're gonna run bloodhound in production right people do it all the time this is just basically taking that data yes but but bad we blood used, is actually yeah we used bad blood to build it fill oh, don't use bad blood in, yes no. <laughs> that's right that's right so the thing with Bad Blood, like Jordan said, is it, it can't create sessions. It can't create those session relationships between a workstation that fictitious 
fictitiously got created and then saying that there's a session on there, it doesn't do that. But it does do things like ACL modification and, and such that is interesting in Bloodhound. Random users from the top thousand first names, last names, random passwords, computer objects, groups. I mean, it is beautiful. Like the output is amazing. So it's actually the first time Jordan and I used that. Prior to this, we wrote our own scripts that did it. So we're happy to see that now there's uh, someone else did the same thing, but in a little bit more of a portable fashion. Nothing like All turning right. your domain into a smoldering heap. So let's bring okay. the questions on, folks. Since we're at the end of the webcast, now it's time for post-show banter yeah. where we answer questions. And then Kent and Jordan start you know, drinking heavily. They're like, oh, we made it. Coffee. Although people are like, live demo, live demo, live demo. Hell no. John, we're going to kill, <laughs> kill the recording. Us. So we're going to kill no! the recording. But we're going to stick oh! around for all the questions. So for everyone, oh, thank you God. so much for being here. On this Black Hills Information Security webcast, please stick around if you'd like to hear the questions. And Shecky was the winner of our Wallace well, Hackenfest hoodie. So, Shecky, make sure you check your messages on Discord. Jason, do you want me to click the stop recording button? Are we done with the recording? Are we done recording? It is now. We're done. Woo! Let's get these pants off.